Hi, and welcome to Paper by Paper, a sports research playbook, a podcast hosted by Elea and Alex, where we explore sports science research papers. In this episode, we use a paper by Jim McKay from the Queensland Roads to talk about rules versus principles in sports science. Our journey begins with the dictionary definitions of rules and principles, which are not as separate as you may think, before delving into what this means for practice design in various sports. We touch briefly on implicit and explicit learning and the role of game models and plans. We also explore how sport may be similar, but never exactly the same, and how principles can help point us in a direction without necessarily determining our route. Let's get started. Alrighty, welcome back to episode two of the Paper by Paper podcast. This is so exciting. Um, Finally. <laughs> Long time coming, but that is because we have been busy thinking about how we're going to tackle the concept of rules versus principles. And it's also taught me to not maybe preface what our next episode is going to be about in the previous episode, because this was much harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> this, this took a lot of discussion that will continue throughout this whole episode. Yeah, to, to make it sound like we know where this is going, it's not. Yeah. Um, no, it's not planned in the slightest. And I think that's probably the best part about this, right, is that we don't really have anything to go on other than a starting point and a paper to feature. Yep, pretty much. Love it. So we're going to start with the dictionary definitions of rules and principles, because I don't know about you, but every time I don't know where to start, I just go straight back to how we actually define the thing before I run away on a tangent. Is that mm. is that similar for you? It's It's a good... It's a good basis to start off. When in doubt, look for the dictionary. Um, that's how I was taught growing up of when I was doing, I don't know, doing research for school projects or whatever. And I'd be like, where do I start? Mum was always like, go to, the, go to the dictionary, see what it says, go to the encyclopedia. Just out of curiosity, is English your parents' second language? Yes. Yeah, mine too. So maybe, yeah. that's, a, that, maybe that's an ESOL <laughs> probably, thing. Probably a bit of that, yeah. But we had these like big like huge like dictionary like the proper like encyclopedias yeah 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 they're like i have the full like alphabetic encyclopedias we had like the big dictionaries that had like the cutout tabs and you pick the letter and you can open it and we're getting off track already (laughs) (laughs) we're doing well but i mean like yeah i think that's an esol thing like it's knowing what the word means and how you use it and then Mm. of course like that kind of guides our understanding of it but it's not the only way we understand the word so that's why Mm. i wanted to preface that that's a really interesting (laughs) place to start and something we share in common I guess so Mm, that's true the dictionary definition of a rule is one of a set of explicit or understood regulations or principles governing conduct or procedure within a particular area of activity now this messed me up a little bit because I'm a little annoyed that principle is used in the definition of rule rule. (laughs) I was gonna say I was like look there it is already Every time I talk about this stuff, everyone's like, I can't tell the difference between a rule and a principle, and this is why. This is why. (laughs) Sorry, by contrast. (laughs) Not helpful in the slightest, but by contrast. (laughs) The dictionary definition of a principle is a fundamental truth or proposition 
that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. It's also got a second definition because a, a principle is found in physics and chemistry as well. Um, so it can mean a general scientific theorem or law that has numerous special applications across a wide field. And I actually think that's probably more what we're talking about in sports science than yeah. a fundamental truth or proposition. Hmm. Yeah, I remember in physics, I think we were talking about uh, laws and theories. And I think like the principle, like you've got to go from a theory a law and then the principles like the overarching the big one yeah umbrella type thing i love um, that uh, when we try to teach um ecological dynamics in particular like it's very much just like the the framework the the pedagogy and that's governed <laughs> by principles and then the approaches are kind of fed by all of those things so like mm -hmm. uh, and that's something we'll talk about today in the paper that we use like how do you bring some of these things to life and and of course then what is the rule and and what yep. is a principle <laughs> Um, I also wanted to pick up on another word here, the fact that the definition of rule used explicit. So mm. when we talk about setting rules, um, and we can think of this in a in a daily context, or we can think about it in a sport context as well. <laughs> if I had to ask you to develop a rule for something, <laughs> anything, um, what's the first thing you would do? Well, it's something like a when you think of a rule, it's kind of like, it's a thing that's kind of like written down set in stone you have to follow this thing in order to get the consequence not the consequence you have to follow this thing in order to be successful in this context mm -hmm. so it's quite rigid right like there's mm -hmm. definitely a boundary but it's also such a firm or rigid boundary that you can't go beyond it right you're expected yeah. to follow only this um yeah. So in one of your sporting contexts, can you think of any rules or um, a rule that you might use um, in your coaching or in your just playing experience that you've come up with before? I mean, the easy, the easy cop-out answer to this is like the rules of the game themselves, right? Yeah, surely, surely. So like in hockey, for example, there's a rule that you can't let the ball touch your feet. If it does, mm -hmm. it's a penalty and it's turned over to the other team. Mm -hmm. That's a rule. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you are absolutely not wrong. And in the same way that I can't bend my elbow when I, I bowl in cricket, right? Like that is mm -hmm. definitely a rule and it creates a very rigid approach to what you have to do. Mm -hmm. um, and we're kind of defining that really explicitly. Is there a way to maybe create a rule that is more implicit? Um, so trying to find something that doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what to do, but still guides your behaviour. It's kind of hard to describe, isn't it? Because, mm. I mean, in and of itself, the nature of an implicit rule is that it's not something that's at your conscious forefront, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what an implicit thing is. Yep. Um, think like you could it would end up being uh it'd be a I could figure out like a workaround of an implicit rule but mm -hmm. I don't think I could actually say what this the, is rule the rule is yeah so I, like I don't I don't know like a workaround 
can't even think of a workaround for a rule either. <laughs> and I think that's, that speaks to our point, right? Like why it's so difficult to determine what is a rule <laughs> and what is a principle, yeah. especially in sports science. It's, I'm sorry, I'm just using you as a live example here. I don't know if you can work that out by now. But no, I had no idea. <laughs> you, are, you are my guinea pig right now. Um, I actually found a really good passage. It was an example of like what we used to, I guess, understand rules um, mm -hmm. in a section about implicit motor learning in a skill acquisition textbook. And it was this um, artificial grammar learning task by mm -hmm. Arthur Reber in the 60s. And so he essentially used um, compound rules governing complex tasks to understand like what we know and don't know, I guess, about mm -hmm. rules. Um, so he didn't actually tell the participants about the rules. They didn't know the rules at all. Um, but they were later asked to determine whether or not unfamiliar examples of the task actually followed the same rules that they were following. And despite not knowing what the rules were, they were surprisingly accurate <laughs> at being able to say really this cool. did follow the rule. Um, and so he considered in that context then that like implicit learning is like the accrual of knowledge that, you know, there are actually processes and you mm -hmm. are capable of anticipating I guess that process without necessarily knowing what that process is so can we maybe use this as our line in the sand between rules and principles to be like mm -hmm. you don't have to be explicitly aware of the rule yeah. and there still may be rules that exist that we follow and so when we try to use a principle instead of a rule like maybe we are still following rules. We're never. We're not saying rules don't exist, or we can't, mm. we're not using them. Like stop using yeah. them. It's more like it's very hard to draw the line. But maybe oh, there is sure. like a tentative line in the sand. I guess that rules can be implicit, but and we yeah. won't be able to tell you what they are or why we're following them. But mm. that doesn't necessarily mean that's our only option. I guess when setting tasks and trying to encourage learning in sporting contexts. Yeah. Mm. It's so. an interesting thing to ponder, it's right? So like, <laughs> I love that example of of how these participants could tell you exactly why it did or didn't follow the rule, but couldn't actually tell you what the rule was in and of itself. Mm. I find that really fascinating. Because it's like, very understanding. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think there is something to be said that um, <laughs> being conscious about something, but then still being do like doing something, they don't mm -hmm. have to happen at the same time. And like mm -hmm. maybe if anything, a lot of the ways that people test implicit learning in particular mm -hmm. is like dual tasks, right? Trying to yeah, distract yeah. your working memory to see if you can still do the task. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I think the the foundational, almost like traditional approaches to skill acquisition yeah. always maintained was that as you go along, you have less like cognitive processing required mm. the more skilled that you become the more expertise yeah. you, you gain and that was exactly yeah like we're, we're all like assuming that like cognition having to think mm -hmm. about something very <laughs> explicitly means that you don't understand what's happening or that you're mm. not particularly skilled in that area and I don't think they were wrong it was just an interesting thing to kind of hang your hat on and say this is yeah. it this is the thing yeah You've just reminded me that that's that was such a big thing in terms of like you you've become an expert when you've become autonomous mm. and like that's true in some aspects of the context of sport but on the other hand you also need to consciously think about what you're doing mm. and it just goes back to that idea about the implicit and explicit thing like there's not one over the other you still need to use both. Mm. I do think that's it's um. 
<laughs> that's probably a podcast episode in itself to be <laughs> fair but um I do think it begs the question then like can learners so people who aren't necessarily already mm-hmm. skilled in a particular environment can they not be autonomous at all like is that mm-hmm. mutually exclusive then yeah um can you not be autonomous and that is only something you guess unlock <laughs> as you become more as you level up essentially yeah what a Oh, this is this is another this is definitely rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, bits and pause now. We're gonna we're gonna put you on the back burner. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have I was gonna say a word. Things. I was gonna say a word, but then you, I feel like you would have gone. Don't start me on that one. <laughs> so I'm not gonna say the word. <laughs> we're gonna need to write down these triggers so we can we avoid really them. Do. We really do. <laughs> it's just safer that way. Um, I did have a really good example um, from a. a from the same textbook um, they were talking about using analogies to try and help people learn Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was uh, less explicit than telling someone a rule and Mm. um, more towards like can you follow this general principle and I think this is one of the early examples of the difference between explicit instructions as rules and then analogies almost as like implicit versions of rules as principles yeah Um, yeah so we're starting to like almost see where the distinction could be. Um, and the example I gave gave was actually um, table tennis. So uh, it's hard to call it table tennis and not ping pong, but I feel like table tennis is definitely more professional. So I'll try to use it as much as possible. Um, but essentially they, as most people do, we're trying to relate back to an analogy that most people are familiar with. Now, mm-hmm. if you've passed year 10 maths, usually uh, a right angle triangle and Pythagoras' theory um, makes it really easy to relate to how you're moving. And you can use the yep. sides of this triangle essentially to to guide behavior. And so a lot of people use this triangle and the, the sides in particular to guide um, hitting the ball. So they were saying, come like use the hypotenuse and follow that path with the racket itself. Mm-hmm. Paddle, I guess. I think it's paddle. Um, paddle with yep. the paddle to actually hit the ball and, and meet the ball towards yep. the top yep. of the triangle. And for those who are listening and not watching, I'm I'm literally doing this action as I'm yeah, yeah, I can actually see Alex hitting <laughs> the paddle. Practicing He's a top the hypotenuse. <laughs> um, and so for me, that makes sense. And I've definitely used that with kids who are interested in math to connect with them in mm. sport. Um, but when they tried to use it with a group of Chinese learners, they did not care at all <laughs> about triangles. Um, and it just didn't relate to them at all. And so an analogy mm. to be functional actually has to to settle in and, and make sense to the person. Mm. Um, and so they tried to come up with a more culturally relevant version of this mm. same um, principle, which which was um, the side of a mountain. And so the textbook does a really good job of putting the triangle, the right angle triangle, and like the path of the paddle on the side of the mountain. And all of a sudden it just made so much more sense as to why, but also how. And so you can find that they were reorganizing to follow the side of the mountain as they're meeting the ball. And I I think that's uh, almost a good place to start in terms of what is a rule and what is a principle. And that the rule would have been like, you have to go at this angle and you have yep. to meet the ball here and you have to do exactly this. Mm. Um, whereas the the side of a mountain analogy allows you to maybe explore that yourself a little bit more. Yeah, and sure. you probably can't say where your arm was or what angle no. it was at or where you met the ball, mm. but you're still doing that solution. Yes. Yeah. And it probably, it's still a bit restrictive, I guess, in telling them exactly how the path of the paddle should go. But 
but mm. there's still quite a bit of like variability in how you do that so it's probably open enough to still encourage like mm. solutions that are quite individual the way that I like move the paddle for a side of a mountain it's going to be different to how you do it but we yeah. might get the same outcome exactly. which is top spin on the ball yeah I love that the mountain I remember you were telling me about this and you said Pythagoras and I was like Pythagoras what and then you were like you know the hypotenuse of the triangle I was like yes where is this going again <laughs> and I was so confused as to what exactly you were trying to use with this example and um, and then eventually you explained it and I was like oh okay and then you started talking about the mountain and I was like oh this makes more sense like, yeah, yeah. Of it's a mountain it's right there it's, it's a mountain that's the shape that you want that's how you mm. or like it's uh or it just reminds me of like the, the cues or the analogies that you use to try and try and get people to understand like the way that you have to change to change the analogy to suit who the learner is I find that really interesting especially like the cultural element of it of like the these these learners from an, from another culture being like I mean we know what that is but why are we using Pythagoras why are we using triangles there's a mountain there's a perfectly good mountain that we can use right here that looks exactly like a triangle <laughs> exactly, exactly. nature <laughs> I'm curious now, like after having this conversation, if we're going to go back now to our, our various coaching environments and try to come up with more relevant <laughs> analogies for things. Like, and I'm, I'm going to have to start lie. writing them down. I'm not going to lie. I, I was thinking, as you were talking about this analogy, I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, the one that I first thought of, because we were talking about angles, mm. was the concept of in swimming where you have to, when you do freestyle, you want your elbow to come up at a 45 degree angle as it comes over the water. Mm. But then I remember when we were teaching it, you don't want to tell kids 45 degree angles, too much to think about. They're trying to swim at the same time. <laughs> too much, too much to think about. So we'd always say you got like a shark fin to come out of the Ooh. water. So it gets them up at that, close enough to that angle and then gets them over. But then the similar thing of like that, the fact that using that shark fin analogy means that uh, kids who have probably something like, I don't know, different length of limbs, for example, will get different angles to get their arm up and over the water. But it, again, like this analogy, it gets to the same result. The arm comes up out of the water, it's in the right angle to try and get back to re-enter the water. But something like that in terms of, I also think the angle thing might be a touch too much for, I don't know, for example, an 11-year-old to think about. But that's because I was teaching your 11-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the shark fin, though. And, yeah. and it begs the question, like, um, how do we know that we're setting rules or setting principles? Like, Because mm. I feel like even then you're still setting the same outcome, like desired outcome in that yeah. you have to get your elbow at a particular angle out of the water. Mm -hmm. But there's more freedom in that because mm -hmm. like you still self-organize to get to that point. Like the way that yeah. I would do that compared to the oh, way yeah. you do that. Like yeah, it yeah, gives yeah. us the space to do that individually. Yeah. I think for a lot of other contexts, it might be really difficult to to know whether or not you've set a rule or you've set a principle, mm, especially given like how explicit sometimes the objective is, like you have yes. to do this thing. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. maybe that's just the way that we've always coached it. So we kind of come back to saying like this is the mm. way that you have to do a thing. 
And I remember um, <laughs> throwing is a really good example in cricket because we try to force people to throw in a particular way for right. injury risk, right? And that's well, that's yeah. fair enough. Like you mm-hmm. were throwing, you know, as a kid, we probably threw thousands of balls a, a week. Um, oh, yeah. And <laughs> how, you know, most people don't get shoulder injuries is, is probably mm. because there was this very rigorous throwing program that we used yep, to go yep. through. And I hated it. Like my shoulder just did not want to do it at all. Yeah. And I remember getting in trouble for throwing mm. a different way. So I would just pretend mm. to do it like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the objective like is really to prevent injury risk, right? Yeah, and yeah, the way yeah. that we do that, uh, I think a baseball study in particular, because they're really mm. worried about kids' shoulders and elbows, we're yeah, saying yeah. that you don't want to be too low as you throw the ball. So the yep. goal is to kind of get up and above your shoulder and come yep. down as you throw it. Um, and so how we do that looks different depending on the sport that you play, um, yeah. which I find really interesting. So cricket was very much like you point. I don't know if we'd still do it now, but it's like <laughs> you point backwards. You almost have like a little like snake shape with Sorry, your I'm hand. I'm just watching pointing. Alex make a snake shape on the screen right now. <laughs> you, never, you know, it's like I feel like it was in Bring It On or something. Um, you're kind of pointing backwards, and, <laughs> and then you have to come through above like the shoulder. And I actually can't do it the way that they do. Really you kind specific. of point back and then point forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and it was very much like over the shoulder. So you're coming oh. like back and over. Whereas in baseball, we kind of I. I in particular, not every mm-hmm. baseballer does this, but you mm-hmm. use like a rotational force as well. So your elbow's yeah, still yeah. above the shoulder, but I use that rotation to give yeah. me a bit more like whip at the end of my throw yeah, and I can yeah, yeah. use that to my advantage. And I liked that so much more yeah. as a kid when I worked it out. Like I found it, I was like, ooh, I could I could yeah. do this all day. Like, <laughs> it's quite comfortable actually and I quite like this. And so I stuck with it until mm-hmm. I got in trouble. And I used to go to like state training. They're like, what are you mm-hmm. doing? You should be throwing like this. Oh, and I hated it. Like it just stopped <laughs> me wanting to explore different ways to do yeah. things. And I just didn't understand. Even as like a 14 year old, mm. I was so obnoxious and being like, <laughs> why were you forcing me to do this? Like I'm still doing the same thing, right? I'm getting the same outcome. And I look at it now and think maybe I was always destined to be a skill act if I was that questioning <laughs> of traditional approaches to coaching. Um, this is just <laughs> not that I believe in destiny, but <laughs> I have a question for you then in terms of that. Mm. As a kid, did they tell you that the reason that they're teaching you this was to prevent injury? I Do you... don't think so. Uh, I think they might have called it prehab. Um, so like the training that yeah, you as do. As a kid, would you know what that means? Uh, I mean, as a 14-year-old, I remember throwing um, medicine balls into the ground thinking it was going to make me a bad bowler. <laughs> and and uh, we used to do, like, boxing and stuff as well before as yeah. a warm-up. Yeah, some crazy stuff. But, no, I think it wasn't only until, like, under-18s level maybe where okay. they started uh, treating us like adults, I probably think is the best way to explain it in that yeah, right. you probably got more of the story as to why. Um, yeah. Other than that, it was probably just based on conformity. Like mm. if everybody does it this way, yeah. at least then we're probably helping most people. And I think the FIFA yeah. 11 is a good example of that, right? Mm. Where the, if everyone does this warm up, then, you know, we're doing a great job of making sure people uh, reduce yeah. their risk of knee injury. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that no one's doing the warm up properly anyway. <laughs> Which is the most depressing body of research is when you come up with something that's really helpful and no, no one does and no it. No one uses it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> not in the way it was supposed to be used. No, unfortunately um, not. Do you think? <laughs> do you think if you'd been told earlier that, hey, we're doing this so you don't get injured, you'd probably be less kind of 
uh, what's that word? Uh, like less butting heads with the concept of it. Mm. Like if you oh, were think... like told, obviously yeah. using terminology for like the kids would understand, not being like this is prehabilitation for your yeah. you know, not the you know prehab. Oh, I'm just laughing <laughs> thinking about it now, being a 15 year old and and somewhat knowing what prehab is. Um, I yeah, I'm curious if whether or not because I don't think telling someone to mm. put their elbow above their shoulder as they throw works. Mm, and it comes mm-hmm. back to that explicit rule, right? Like it's an yeah. instruction. Mm. Um, and whether or not you know you're doing that is really difficult yeah. as well. Like I can see myself in the camera right now, but mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you whether or not I was doing it until yeah. like I guess after a certain point because the architecture of your body adapts yeah, over time true, true. and you've done it so many times. Um, I can tell if I've thrown too low or if yeah. I've like definitely gone below the shoulder in a particular <laughs> way because um, <laughs> we were built up like that. They definitely yeah. made sure that we would do it. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious if, yeah, whether or not telling us like it's to prevent injury, we want like a high yeah. high Absolutely. back lift, I guess, or a high release yeah. point means that uh, we would have naturally explored those anyway as guiding yeah. principles rather than rules like yeah. to tell us exactly where to go and what to do versus mm-hmm. like I want the ball pointing back and I want my arm to come through over the shoulder yeah is that enough of a, a principle I guess instead mm. of a rule to mm. still guide the desired behavior to keep people safe mm. I mean it reminds me of when we were having discussions about this podcast and planning this podcast I think there was an example you gave about a rule and a principle where like a rule might be don't open the third drawer of this kitchen but you don't tell the child why but the mm. principle is there are knives in there and knives are dangerous don't open this drawer but you only tell them the rule of don't open this drawer so, so if they see the, a knife I, on the countertop they still they don't know that they it's, don't dangerous. it's dangerous yeah yeah that, I, <laughs> that that especially came into it when you were talking about like the idea of injury prevention which i thought was quite interesting so that's what it reminded me yeah of. I, yeah, I've never thought of those two things being connected. I'm pretty sure like Carl Woods said that on a podcast once and, that, mm. and it stuck with me. But I, I actually told my parents that same rule and principle example and it's hilarious how they responded. So, uh, sorry, mum and dad, but essentially we were talking about um, yeah, the difference between a rule and a principle. And mm. I use that example and they totally understood, right? Like, yes, yes, saying don't open the drawer is not the same as saying don't open the drawer because there are knives and you can hurt yourself. And mm. my dad's first response to that, was well if you want to show people that knives are dangerous like don't you have to demonstrate that in some way by I don't know cutting chicken in in front of them I was like look I mean I get what you're saying but if someone had taken like just a literal like chicken like at least let's say like chicken breasts so it's not like an actual chicken and they were like don't use this knife because look what could happen to you you're making (laughs) dinner like We've, we've gone too far <laughs> in terms of what we're trying to teach them in that particular context. Like, you will get cut up to pieces. Like, <laughs> so maybe they won't understand. But what if what if you're just, like, cutting up the chicken and then the kid's just like, so you're just preparing dinner? <laughs> this, the result of using the knives and opening the drawer is dinner is now yeah. going to start? Is that how it works? I think that's a, as funny as it is, that is an excellent point in terms of like how different you can interpret the same interaction as well. Like, because, yeah, my first thought is like, oh God, is he saying that I'm going to get chopped up as a result? <laughs> like, me just like dinner stuff. The preparation yeah. for food is beginning. Yeah, I, I need this implement for that. And I think, yeah, it's the difference between like understanding really, like, um, you can almost go back to knowledge of and knowledge about, right? Like mm-hmm. being able to to tell what you would use it for, but also yes. like what it is. 
Um, I do think there's a a clear difference between those two things. And so Mm. um, how many times have we accidentally, I guess, given people the don't open the drawer rule when really Mm. we meant I want you to be safe around knives? Yep, yep, yep. So I think that in itself, there are so many examples of that. Um, But maybe this is a good time to start introducing our paper because they did a really good job of a practice task that we found really interesting um, in our own experience in different sports as well. So uh, a lot of our discussion is (laughs) this practice task, discussing how what it actually looks like. (laughs) <laughs> mm, uh, yeah maybe we're just gonna have to set some assumptions and rules I guess of, of <laughs> what it looks like just for the sake of discussion so we don't lose so. people um, but I will tell you that the name of the paper is an ecological insight into the design and integration of attacking principles of play in professional rugby union so this is a case example by Jim McKay who was at the the Reds the Queensland Reds um, and with an awesome like panel of, of authors as well based in ecological dynamics with Sam Robertson um, Keith Davids and Carl Woods. Um, and what I particularly loved about this paper, and there are a couple of things that I'll mention before we get into the practice task itself, but um, I think there's a big push recently to try and help coaches really understand how to apply concepts like mm-hmm. ecological dynamics and what this looks yeah. like in practice. And this is one of the, <laughs> I think, best examples of what that could look like. In terms of following the coach's journey along, like what they do, mm. why they do it, and then how it looks like in practice. Yeah. And I was really taken aback by how much Jim gets this. Like he totally <laughs> gets it. It is a very, you know, depth of understanding that allows him to make really informed decisions about what he does yeah. as a coach and why. And yeah. it's shown in his philosophy, which I won't read because it's brilliant and I really encourage you to read the paper. But mm-hmm. I think you you have made it as a coach in terms of your mission and your philosophy when you can ask an ex-player that you have coached yeah. to design your p- philosophy, like, to, sorry, to describe your philosophy. Yeah, and yeah. it is absolutely spot on. And you yeah, use that yeah. quote in your paper instead of telling us about it. Yeah, that was something that I picked up on as well because I saw it and was like, oh, that he didn't actually just describe it himself. He asked someone, the, like he was saying, the confidence that he has in the fact that his philosophy is so clear for his players that he can ask a player and be like, yep, that's it. Put it in. Done. The consistency. Like, exactly. Oh, to, the to consistency know your you vision. must have. Exactly. The consistency you must have and the consistency to show this and prove this and exemplify this with your athletes consistently. That they're able to be like, yes, this I know exactly what he's trying to do with us. I know exactly why why we're doing this, what we're doing, what's the goal, and for them to understand that, that's incre- that's incredibly impressive. I um I quite like the reflexivity afterwards as well to be like they applied it in a preseason without <laughs> due consideration and prior knowledge of the members of the group, and so <laughs> I read that and go, oh, it definitely flopped. Like <laughs> someone came in too hard with too many ideas and nobody liked it. But there was a line in the philosophy <laughs> that you quite liked. Which one was it? Oh, uh, it was the creating organized chaos amongst the already chaotic nature of rugby. I just, this is what we've been talking about, is that sport is organised chaos. Mm. We have these rules of a sport that tell us how to play the sport, but within the sport itself, anything could still happen within that realm. 
I just love the idea of, of organized chaos as a, as a description for sport. I think it's just perfect. Yeah, there was a point um, before Jim starts talking about the actual design of practice um, that he acknowledged that no scenario is identical. And mm -hmm. so you design activities that create varying levels of, I guess, safe uncertainty and mm -hmm. controlled chaos to promote mm -hmm. like the behaviours and the solutions that you need when you mm -hmm. are faced with that chaos. And I love that. Like sport very much follows patterns. Yeah. And there are definitely plays that happen all of the time. But that doesn't mean they're identical. They are never sure. exactly the same. Sure. And so while we can like prepare for situations mm. and we might have preferred movement solutions, I guess, to solve those problems True. because they do happen, like you're always going to attack at some point in an invasion yeah. sport, yeah. right? So you can have attacking rules, I guess, or at least preferred movement patterns, mm -hmm. um, but you're never really solving the exact same problem, um, even if it, it looks the same. From, mm. a, from an outsider, even if we're sitting in the stands watching this game and we yeah. know that this team is attacking, yeah, it might yeah. look very similar, but it's never exactly the same. And I think that's sure. so cool. Mm. And I, so, so I, I think it, it actually begs the question, right? Like what mm. are we trying to simulate when we mm. design practice? Because yep. I think it's very easy to get lost in, I want to practice this movement. Yeah either as a pattern or as a solution to a problem, but yeah, we kind yeah. of take pieces, I guess, or um, expected <laughs> versions of what we think will happen during mm -hmm. the game and we isolate them so that we can practice them over and over yeah. again. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas Jim here in particular, like using the full force of what um, ecological dynamics could look like, he speaks mm -hmm. about trying to maintain like the repetition of going through and attacking without yep. actually repeating the same attacking play over yeah, and over again. Too. Yeah. Repetition without repetition. And I think yeah. this is probably one of the best examples where I've seen that. Um, and I guess I'll uh, explain the practice task first and then we can mm. go into why it caught our attention. Yep. So essentially practice task one in this paper was about continu continuity of play. So we wanted to keep the ball alive. And the goal here was to work in small groups um, and then invite players to explore ways of performing continuity skills to keep the ball in motion. Some examples of what that might look like would be evading their opponents, um, offloading or passing either before or after contact, mm -hmm. um, performing supporting play actions, and then coordinating between each other in local interactions to drive synergy formation. So working together essentially to solve this problem. Yep. Now, the one issue that we had here while reading this paper in particular is we couldn't tell from the description how many defenders there are <laughs> in the space. So <laughs> you do have two subgroups, right? Like an attacking group yes. of four players and a defending group defending of four, four. players. <laughs> but <laughs> it says that they were required to spread themselves randomly across playing channels. And those channels were about like 25 metres long or anywhere between 5 to 10 metres wide. And then, yeah. of course, the attackers broke into groups of four. And then went down <laughs> the channels. And ran down the channels. So did they face four defenders per channel or one defender in each of four channels? We were like, how is this foosball table set up? It genuinely, it just... I, I could see it in my mind as a foosball table. Like, And because it does explicitly say that the defenders couldn't move forward and back, right? They can't chase they you. Have to once you get past them, yep. that's fine. Like, so they're literally on little like handles and we're like flipping them over. <laughs> they can only go side to side. They can go forward and back. That's just... 
it was foosball, but we couldn't figure out how the foosball table was structured. Yeah, so like, do they, and I think for argument's sake, it's probably easiest for us to say, because there are quite a few one-on-one interactions in invasion sports like this one, let's mm-hmm. just say that there was one defender in, and they could stand anywhere to start with, anywhere within this channel, and mm-hmm. then you could decide within your four players, like how you're going to get past that person to the end of the channel. That's our that's our ground rules. Like we're going to set that rule for the sake of having some boundary to this conversation, yeah, so we don't lose the semantics. Um, but yeah, I think that in itself, there is so much to unpack there. Oh, because sure. I love the idea of these channels. I love that you can interact with the players like mm-hmm. defensively in ways that definitely promote attacking plays that are different mm-hmm. um, or that repeat without being repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, but in <laughs> I want to start with the size of the channels. Because <laughs> that's something that stood out to me. So having a channel that would be 25 meters long and yep. five meters wide, mm-hmm. with four rugby players standing in five meters across, mm-hmm. what are we trying to achieve here? Because if we if we think about it, right, five if we if we because it says it's five to ten meters wide. So let's say we cut it at five. So mm-hmm. we cut it at five. We've got four rugby union players. Now these guys are probably big big people they're wide people they could probably take up a meter in and of themselves which leaves them a meter space so that cuts short their options in terms of going wide which means they have to think even more creatively about about how they use that space Mm -hmm. so do you think that's something we can manipulate intentionally then like if we we know that we're cramped into a particular spot or mm. uh, we're say we're up against the sideline and we've only mm-hmm. got a couple like five meters to work with mm. and four available people um i guess is it useful to train at only five meters wide when usually you would have like the width of the pitch um mm. to actually explore like are we are we stopping them from doing something that they would normally do on game day mm. in a in a good way or in a and maybe like a dysfunctional way mm. I think the the fact that you went straight to if they're working up against the sideline, mm. I think that would be a case where it'd be good to have that, perhaps not constraint. exactly that width, but have that constraint of like the size that you've got. You can only go this far wide, otherwise you're literally going to go off the field. Mm. That's, that's I think that's a really important point and something to consider practicing, especially when you have to work up against the sideline. I think that's a good point. But in terms of just, I think, well, we were discussing this kind of like the logistics of having a five meter wide wide channel with players who are probably already a meter wide in and of themselves <laughs> it was just kind of I think as a side note it was kind of funny for us to try and figure out because it was like they're so big they probably take up most of the channel anyways and <laughs> 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 trying to just trying to figure out how they how how they would obviously they'd be staggered and you know things like that but still like we were saying rugby you can only pass backwards so there's only a there is still quite a limit in terms of how far backwards they can be staggered, how far to the side they can move. So, yeah. <laughs> this, yeah it's so much, and we're literally only talking about the width of the channel. Like, <laughs> it makes you think about how much goes into the design of these practice tasks, right? Like, there are so many things to consider. Um, mm-hmm. I, actually, you made a really good point when we were planning for this around mm-hmm. um, <laughs> running in channels. So the, the oh, fact yes. that being in a channel can actually shape the way that you run or you approach a defender in any yeah. context. Um, and I think you gave an example in hockey. Yeah. So when we were talking about this, we were talking about the channels and talking about the structure of the channels. And I remembered we did a drill once in hockey um, where 
we had a similar sort of setup in that we had a channel, but instead of having multiple channels, we had one channel running along the sideline and had we had defenders at each section. So say every like five meters, there was a defender. Um, and so we just had, it was a two-on-one situation, two people had the ball, and every time you get to a section, you have a defender. So the thing was, obviously, you know, hockey is a very 360-degree sport. Like, you can go forward, backwards, whatever way you can, as long as you don't go out the field. Not like rugby union at all, where you have to pass backwards always. So obviously, different constraints here. But, like, the problem that we came across was that um, and it's something that a player once said, someone in a higher grade once said to us in terms of the way we set up this attack. And she said that we had to stop running in tracks. So whenever you're doing a two-on-one situation in hockey, obviously you kind of set up like a triangle, I guess. You've got the two people on the starting line. One has the ball, one's your support player, and you've got a defender in front of you. Mm. What ended up happening was, as players, we'd stay in our lines so we wouldn't cut across at any point. We'd run in our tracks like we're running train tracks. So the problem there was whenever we'd approach the defender, the defender could see us coming. If we tried to cross, like pass across the defender, they'd just be like, stick out. There you go. Got the ball. Thank you very much. Done. So the problem with like running in tracks, whereas like I was saying, hockey is such a 360 degree sport. We could have gone backwards. We could have could have gone 3D, to be honest, have a little like mm. overhead over the top. But slightly dangerous but anyways but like <laughs> the fact that as players approaching this problem we didn't think to start using more cuts or cutting earlier or cutting behind or even just thinking of cutting <laughs> was was such a problem so I remember it was something that as a hockey player I I think about but obviously as a rugby player they can't they don't always have that option there is option to cut mm. that is a solution whether it's worth, whether it's worth what they're doing, it depends. But yeah, and I think uh, the positioning of the defender as well is something that we spent quite a bit of time oh, talking yes. about in terms of what do we do if because they were able to stand wherever they wanted, but they couldn't move yep. forward or back. So the way I pictured it again, foosball table style, is that you might have staggered defenders. Um, yep. So yep. you have maybe one person who decides they're going to put a lot of pressure on you immediately, and they're going to stand five meters in front of you to mess with you. Or you might have someone who like stands in the middle of the box, which I think most people would probably do. So you have a bit yep. of time either side, or they could stay right at the end of the box to like try and mess you up as you're just about to solve the problem. Yeah. And mm. I'm definitely a, a mid person. Like I probably just would have stood in the middle of the box because I'm mm. not really thinking about how I can put defensive pressure on. And um, I'm curious whether or not, and I'd like to think as professional rugby players, they probably didn't, but as someone who is a complete rookie in terms of rugby, mm -hmm. I probably would have approached that defender exactly the same way, depending on where they were standing in the box. And I mean that yep. for the person yep. in the middle, I would have used the, say they're at the 10 meter mark, yep. I would have used the maybe seven meters in the lead up to them to maybe mm -hmm. come up with some sort of synergy with my teammates to, to get yep. around them. Mm. If that person was at say the 20 meter mark, I mm. probably would have just spent the 20 meters right. <laughs> getting up to them, yeah. just working out the exact same thing. Like <laughs> I probably yeah. would not have used that space effectively. I would continue mm. running up until I am forced with the immediate issue of a defender, and then also and then solve the problem almost in that like five meter gap in front of yep. them. 
Yeah. And if that person was at five meters away from me, I'm screwed because now I have no time to like plan what to do. And so I'm literally just sitting there like, oh God, what, what, if I move, I'm done. This is so funny because this is the thing that we had. This is the exact same problem we had in the hockey drill. Because like you said, if you're there five meters, I think our like little areas were only five meters. So there was not enough, much time at all to do anything. But usually the problem with us, I should put a caveat in here. I'm not a professional hockey player in <laughs> any way, shape or form. I feel like people are listening being like, wow, this person sucks at hockey. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> in my defense, I am an amateur. I've been playing for many years, but I'm still an amateur. We're still amateurs. <laughs> We're still amateurs. This is not a, I'm not a professional by any means. But like one of the things is that when you're faced with someone directly in front of you, and you're a player and like you're a training and maybe you don't want to be here. So the first thing you do is you pass. Mm. Boom. Movement one, done. And it's like, great, that's the other person's problem now. And it's like, well, that doesn't work. But I think th- th- I think it's it's really interesting in terms of the way you were you were talking about defending. Because I was thinking, as a hockey player, my defensive strategy is usually just to go up to them really quickly. Because I'm usually one of the quickest players on the field. I have to be, I have to be quite a quick player on the field given the positions that I play. So usually mm. my defensive strategy is go up to them straight away and then just harass them a bit as they go. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be doing the waiting around in the middle. I'd be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going up to this player. Yeah. But like, the, that's the thing is that when we were doing this drill, if you get stopped at the first segment, then that's it, you cut, start again. So at that point, it's like, well, we're only going to get up against one defender who, if they keep getting the ball and keep defeating the attackers that are coming at them, they're going to keep using that strategy. Why don't we get a chance at other defenders who might use different strategies? Like you were saying, someone might be stumped, like starting right in front of you. Someone might be uh, behind you, you know, that, that kind of thing. But that was really interesting as well. Whereas I think with this, the, with the rugby example, we were imagining that it was one defender per channel. Mm. And and I think that's probably like, given the the depth of knowledge that Tim has, it probably wasn't like maybe it was like a couple or or at least they were staggered maybe throughout the channel. So you're constantly solving problems. I still think there is repetition without repetition. If there is one defender on four attackers within a channel, um, mm. it still meets I guess the the fundamental goal of the the task, which is to encourage them to to have different um, solutions that are going yeah. to hopefully transfer because you've created a, a good task that preserves, yeah. I guess, the fundamental information sources that they'd normally have, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a defender. Um, but something you said there about movement, right, like the way that we defend in invasion sports in particular, um, mm-hmm. there's usually like they're coming towards you. They're not usually yeah. stationary and working yeah. along a line. So that yeah. in itself, and I'm also thinking like in rugby, even if you are tackled, like so much of that tackle is not just actually the one-on-one interaction, but also the interaction of the defending teammates and the attacking mm. teammates. So if just having one person to work around, that mm-hmm. is useful, obviously, and there are definitely mm-hmm. going to be times where you can single people out. But, like, yeah, how much of that, I guess, would transfer the next time you're in a position of an attacking play that isn't one-on-one? Um, and I think it just goes to show how much consideration has to be made when um, you are designing tasks specifically um, yeah. and why these principles are really important rather 
than rules because having a, a set of attacking principles like Dave set out is it just sort of acts as guidance for what the desired mm. behaviors are like and they yeah. spoke about like you almost have a, a framework to ba back those onto mm -hmm. and then the principles in themselves so when they actually set their own attacking principles of play through a like a review process and pilot process yeah. what they came up with was uh in possession and regained possession so two contexts I guess which um, mm -hmm. attacking players would normally happen um, and when those principles would apply and then of course so he didn't sell all of his secrets um, <laughs> some of the the principles themselves were split into say structural formations to help find and move the ball into space and then passing and support plays to include offloads keeping the ball alive and moving yeah. And so you can even see from those like attacking principles how this feeds fed directly into that particular practice task um, because keeping the ball alive and moving is the objective here of an attacking play. So yeah. just because it doesn't necessarily simulate every version of attack within rugby <laughs> union because we don't have the full simulation of play doesn't mean a task like this wouldn't transfer. If anything, yeah. it's a really functional way to explore with maybe a bit of too much overload towards the attackers <laughs> themselves just to give them the space to search and exploit and discover in a comfortable but challenging way like you are yeah. definitely probably gonna definitely probably what a, a great combination <laughs> of words you're probably <laughs> going to win that interaction four yes. on one like yeah yeah surely I'd like to think <laughs> most people would do that in, with their eyes closed but the goal here being to repeat a various amount of solutions to find yeah. different ways to solve this particular problem. Yeah. If by facing one defender in four different channels, so they are sort of moving their way up and down and facing different people, yeah. that in itself could probably create any number of different solutions and you're encouraging them to keep trying different things. I think for mm, me, sure. I would almost need someone to be like, do something else. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because if I find a solution that works in that context, especially when it's super unfamiliar as an amateur, yeah, I'll be like, sure. I'm going to draw the defender in and pass the ball. Woo, done. Like, done. Excellent. Tick. Tick off the box. That's, that's right. That's all I need. So <laughs> the role, I guess, there is depending on who you're coaching and what level they're at, sure. you might want to utilize like rules and principles to mm. kind of re-guide them towards what the objective is in the first place, which is like mm. functional movement solutions. We want you yeah. to find various solutions that work yeah. um don't just stick with the one that is always working um but also like don't give up on a solution just because it didn't work straight away that's it that's true i find it really interesting in terms of um the the goal of this task in particular mm. whereas like the goal of this task in particular is to keep the ball alive mm. whereas the the thing that they're actually training for is attacking strategies and attacking structure. And I think it's really interesting that that is the thing that he's identified that this is the goal for this task in particular. And this is how you can see how it fits into, like you were saying, Alex, like how you're breaking down, like how it fits into attacking structure and how you can see that the, the elements of this task in particular and the solutions that players come up with in this task can be applied to the overarching idea of attacking structure and attacking strategies and attacking game plans. Not every coach is going to be able to do this, and especially mm. at a professional level, right? Like mm. literally half of the paper is him just developing 
the attacking principles of play and, and mm-hmm. making sure that these match, you know, the game models, the game plans that other teams game have so that yeah. you're not just doing it in isolation. It'd be cute to be like, oh, this, yeah. is our, this is our version of play and then you come up against someone who could shut it down in a heartbeat and you've got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and and also the problem of setting too rigid rules and principles, yeah. right? Like if you if they are rules, if they do govern exactly what you need to do and it doesn't work, then you're very much just left at the deep end wondering how on earth am True. I going to solve this problem now? Mm-hmm. Which is why I think we've moved towards, you know, solving problems as the basis of what we're trying to achieve with skill acquisition rather than acquiring mm-hmm. movement patterns because mm-hmm. the chaos of the game demands it. You need That's to it. be able to adapt what you're doing. So don't, I guess, don't become too focused or locked into the way that you move when realistically the best problem solvers are the ones who are going to succeed. Yeah. And so I, I guess that leads us to a point where it's like, how do we then like working in communities in particular, mm. how do we then use this stuff um, without necessarily needing to go back and do homework and you know, research everybody's <laughs> patterns of play when a lot of times and in a lot of sports, there are pre like prescribed game models and plans that exist. So mm. are those inherently bad because they prescribe what to do? Or are we maybe just relying on them a little too much? Hmm. I don't, it's, I find it really, really interesting in terms of, it varies between sports. Because mm. I find that there are a lot of sports that rely on, the examples that I thought of while you were talking about this was that, um, you know, sports like NFL that have such, they've they've got their game plans. They've got their game, well, not, maybe not game plans, but they're like, offensive strategies, defensive strategies, and a big part of NFL is watching the the team you're going to play and breaking down how do we break down this play. Mm. And I think with sports like that, it's such an important thing to to have that game plan and know how to break down that game plan. I find it also interesting, though, because as I was saying that, I remembered, um, I mean, all sports do this. They look at the opposing team and they figure out how, how the team, what strategy that team has and then try to break that down as well but like the way they break it down is not a game plan exactly Mm. it's it's kind of like a the example I'm trying to to use is that say I don't know the kookaburras or the hockey roos they watch someone like I'm gonna get this wrong hockey fans don't come at me um but I don't know say India's playing high press or they're they're playing like a a really really like really strong aggressive press Mm. and so well how does the Australian teams therefore kind of account for that how do we format the players how do we make sure that athletes are moving in the way we want them to move around the field to Mm. kind of account for that it's not it's not a rigid right if they're aggressive at us we're going to stick on them like this like this is exactly how it's going to be set up we can see this happening but again like a game like nfl which has that rigid structure as well on field they and they're in the lines and um just the differences in the sport would affect how how this gets put into play i guess yeah and as you're saying that i remember being at a sports tech conference and they have 
a ridiculous amount of data on penalty kicks. So in football, soccer, they could tell you, and it was like something really creepy to me, at least. They had data mm-hmm. on like 15-year-olds from Brazil. Oh, yeah. And after like playing at like Junior World Cups mm-hmm. and stuff, and they could mm-hmm. tell you the, the probability or the odds ratios, I guess, of where they would take their penalties um, yeah. so that they could inform the goalkeepers on what to do when they're, they're taking the kick. And I there's so much research, I guess, on the ability for goalkeepers to anticipate what is mm. going to happen based on the interaction that they're having with the kicker themselves. And if anything, mm. the, the World Cup recently um, is probably a great example of like how much pressure they're under <laughs> um, and how much it can genuinely define your um, entire competition. For sure. But even then, like where does that information, I guess, fit um, knowing exactly where someone is going to take their kick? Because I remember yeah. someone critiquing Harry Kane's like, you know, <laughs> penalty shootout Um on Twitter, like the, the Twitter warriors were on full force for all of the penalty <laughs> shootouts. And um, it, they, everybody knew. They're like, obviously, this guy kicks like, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like top left corner as a kicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if everybody, in air quotes, knows that, quotes, if the entire of Twitter knows that, why would a goalkeeper dive to their left or the kicker's right? Mm. so is, is mm. it really that simple to say well 90 yeah. percent of the time he goes to this particular place like why not just stand there then <laughs> if it's that certain just set it up like that why, why not just stand in that corner and put your hands up and, and close it on and see what he does like <laughs> and i do think it will never get to that point and i totally understand why but it just begs the question like what is the role of that information in itself and sure. if you have it how do you use it effectively? Because mm-hmm. there was a really great, uh, like, in just passing conversation, there was a really great line where someone said, you know, I think principles help us in a direction, but they don't actually determine the route that we take. Whereas yes. game yeah. models, game plans, they yeah. do determine that route. So yes. where is the expert performance in that if everything mm-hmm. is decided with an analyst in a video three days yep. before the competition? Mm. Yeah. What's the like, point? Of- like of course we're playing devil's advocate here obviously mm. but like there is obviously a place for performance analysis and seeing how how a team generally re- reacts but mm. coming back to the point of like sport is organized chaos like yes they might do this but there is always always opportunity there's always a chance that they might not mm. and that's the <laughs> point of sport <laughs> it would be so boring if they didn't like if it just <laughs> went exactly how we thought it would exactly exactly and that's the point that is the entire point sport. <laughs> I think if anything, it's just this is raw. This is very raw. But watching the Brisbane <laughs> Heat and their game on the twenty first of December. So last <laughs> night for us is this this recording. And watching Michael and Nisa take a hat trick and thinking we're in here, boys. Like how how much better could you start a game than taking a hat trick? Mm. Of which there are only nine in the entire competition, and thinking, surely surely this is how we win the game and then to go and on and yet. lose <laughs> it's like as heartbreaking as that is as a Brisbane Heat fan <laughs> it kind of just goes to the point of like you have no idea how this you game really is going to know and you mm-hmm. can obviously have all the percentages in the world and all of the data mm-hmm. in the world but mm-hmm. I guess it, it is a balance here of as practitioners and I guess as a sports staff mm. how do we balance what we rely on in the moment because we can absolutely use that information to our benefit and it might shape the way that we prepare for the weekend and and that in itself is absolutely brilliant in terms of Mm -hmm. being responsive to who you're up against and what you know about them yeah 
but it is also what you know of playing the game in that moment that should probably not quite override but maybe carry a little bit more weight in terms of how you respond to that um and maybe if we focus on one or the other too much if we spend way like never ever cross paths of those two Mm. different types of knowledge then we're just doing ourselves a disservice because if everyone else is still using it it can't be like fundamentally wrong right like we've gotten to this point of elite performance and sport where people are very successful using them but can we maybe spend our time a bit better as practitioners Mm. if we shift the dial depending on the people in front of us and what is available I guess to us and how we respond to it for sure for sure I think that's very very interesting in terms of like what we're talking about of of organized chaos yeah like there is an organizational aspect to it but fundamentally at its core there is chaos there's chaos in sport always i know it's very interesting i think going back to the definitions of rules and principles Mm. and how you can take bits of one and the other like principles are always in rules we can see that from the definition itself which uses the word principle in it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is annoying, but it goes to show that you can't, so, sometimes you can't have one without the other. Like you have to do yeah. both. Yeah. So I guess as practitioners, then, like we kind of need to understand maybe to a bit more depth than others if we're in charge of the development of other people. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing and what are we saying and how is that really shaping the behavior of the people in front of us? Um, mm-hmm. Could a rule be useful or could the, the use of the same rule in a different context actually limit what we're encouraging them to do? Because mm-hmm. expert performance, like performing in the match or the game, is our ultimate mm-hmm. outcome. And yep. the way that we design training, we, we want to try and simulate the behaviours that they need. We want them to feel like they've solved this problem before, or even if they mm-hmm. haven't, they're so capable at solving problems that it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what they face. Um, I think that's probably one of the, the best moments I've ever had as a coach is when you know, a, an athlete comes back to you and goes like, look, I was, I was stuck. I had no idea what to do. I was very lost. And then I remembered this thing that we did at Mm -hmm. training. And I kind of used that, even though it didn't seem like the right thing at the time or it might seem like a bit left field or crazy to do. Like, I just tried it. And and now I know it doesn't work. And that's okay. And you're like, whoa, I did that? I helped that? Oh, my gosh. And that's the best warm, fuzzy feeling feeling that you can get as a coach, right? 100%. I remember I had a similar thing when I was teaching swimming. And I was getting the the class that I had who were like little high, just under like squad level. So they were getting to that stage where they were like about to get into competition proper and things like that. And we were doing sprints and I was challenging them to think, all right, how do you think you can get faster? Think about like what, what we've been doing throughout our lessons. What do you think we do? This one kid I timed did the first sprint. I was like, all right, let's think about it. Did the second sprint and was like, two or three seconds faster which is huge in swimming by the way if if you didn't Mm. know it's huge and I asked him I was like so what did you think you did better and he he said to me oh I remember that thing you taught us about like I think it was something like reaching further with the stroke so making sure you're reaching further before you do the pull aspect of the stroke and he was like I remember that so I tried doing that instead of like making my arms go really fast I tried doing the longer reach and that helped I think that helped and I was like that's the one this is the one that's like the golden golden moment I was like exactly exactly 
I love that. I, I think we can probably talk about this all day. So we can. <laughs> um, that was a very full circle moment, I think, of coming back to those definitions and realizing maybe it mm-hmm. isn't about separating them. Maybe it's just no mm-hmm. knowing the part that they play, I guess, in our practice. Um, and then absolutely. using people who are, you know, absolute experts and mm-hmm still critiquing what they do so we can understand it better Mm -hmm. like I love that it would be very easy to hold this amazing paper and like don't get me wrong I bloody love this paper Um, paper. but there's still so much to talk about to help us know better how to practice like this um and so maybe the a nice little concluding remark on a on a topic like this is that people will do things amazingly well um Mm -hmm. and it might be tempting to emulate that word for word Mm. Um, but I feel like discussions like these with people doesn't matter who those people are whether or not they're from your field or your sport um, Mm. you'll always open up opportunities that you couldn't see before once you start talking about them and so I wouldn't take that exact practice task just Mm -hmm. flip it to cricket or maybe football soccer and and then just apply it like I would want to have a conversation like this first about it and explore all the all the nooks and crannies about it before I then try to apply it because even though like this is an amazing paper it is not gospel and Mm -hmm. I don't think Mm -hmm. we need to treat anything as if it is completely faultless because it's never going to be and it's never going to completely suit your particular context as well so like please play around with this stuff like explore as much as you can and if you want your athletes to search and exploit and discover you need to do the same as practitioners don't stop yourself from giving yourself the space for sure, exactly. We want to cultivate that space where we can all be, you know, have the guts to try something new. Mm, we've all been there in a sport, right? Where you pick up something new for the yep. first time and you think you're going to be better at it than you are and you just you spend not. the next couple of weeks being frustrated <laughs> instead of yep. just enjoying the learning journey for what it is because why Why exactly. would you expect to be good at this immediately? <laughs> like such harsh critics. <laughs> Always, always. We always are the, our harshest critics. Isn't that the way? Oh, every time. <laughs> well, thank you for another exciting episode. Thank you for our mad discussions, as always. <laughs> we will catch you next time. Till next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Paper by Paper, a sports research playbook, hosted by Alea and Alex. For more about your hosts, you can check them out on Twitter. You can find Alex on Twitter at SkillAcLaskew, and you can find Alea on Twitter at YLMariano. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you around the grounds.